Our scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 12. Again, that's Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. We received word this morning that there was a pretty severe earthquake in North India that has affected Baraka House. From what we understand, the property is intact. But I grew up in earthquake country, so I know one earthquake often follows upon another. So let me just pray now for them, and then I will pray for the message. Lord, you are the God of earth and sky. 
You are the God of earthquakes and hailstorms and all such things. You are totally in control of all things, and so we trust you, O God. The earth shakes under our feet, but nothing shakes under your feet, O God. You are as solid as a rock, and nothing frightens you. Nothing takes you by surprise. Nothing is too great for the Lord. And so we do lift them up over there this morning, Father, but we lift them up in the confidence that you are their God, and you will protect them, and you will keep them. Father, I pray for the poor in northeast India whose houses may have been destroyed by the earthquake this morning. God, only only you know how many have died, how many have been made homeless, how many have suffered now because of what happened. I, I haven't heard the details, but you know. Father, we lift them up before you. We pray that somehow this disaster could be a cause for the gospel as your people rise up to care for those who are suffering. I pray that right this moment you would put great power and wisdom upon your men and women over there, that they would just have ideas for how to reach out and touch people who are in need at this moment. And I pray that as they go out, they would go out in the power of God and not in the flesh, that they would have divine power to break down strongholds, Lord, and and uh, bring Hindus and Muslims to Christ over there. Father, what seems like bad news, I pray that you would turn it into great good news for the people of Northeast India. And I pray that you would give wisdom to Alex and Seiji and the others at Baraka House to know how they too can reach out with the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Please protect our loved ones, I pray, God. But mainly I pray, exalt your great name in that area. We love you and we thank you for being the solid rock upon which our lives are built. This earth could melt away and still we would have hope in you because you are our God. And so we love you, Father, and we give you our thanks. I know, God, I ask you to exalt yourself in this service. I pray that you would take your word and minister to your people. I pray for your help, Lord, as I was pleading with you all day long yesterday. Help me to strike the right tone today. This is a hard message to preach, and I don't want to get the tone wrong, Father. I believe that I'm being true to your word, but I want to have the tone right as well. And so I surrender my heart and my lips and my thoughts to your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would use me now to spread your seed into the hearts of your people for the glory of your name. Father, I trust you for this, and I give you my thanks and praise in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beloved, life on this earth is very serious. It's, an e- it's eternally serious, in fact. There is a, a place for laughter. There's a place for comedy nights. There's a place for seeing irony in things. There's a place for laughing at ourselves. There's a, a place for finding humor. If we had time, I could take you through the Bible and show you where the people of God have seen humor in life and have enjoyed God by laughing about it. Laughter's from God. He created it. It's a good thing. But life is not a laughing matter. There's a place for play in life. I love Psalm 104.26. It talks about a great sea creature that God created. The Bible calls it Leviathan. Don't really know what it was. Probably a big, huge whale of some sort. Whatever it was, they could see it out in the Mediterranean Ocean as they looked out from the shores of Israel. And Psalm 104.26 said that God created that big old huge beast to do nothing but play in the waters of the ocean. God created a huge creature to do nothing but play. And I'm sure that He takes joy in that. And I'm sure He takes joy in watching lion cubs wrestle around with each other in in the fields. And watching children play hopscotch and watching pastors like me fly down the road on their bikes and feel the joy of God. I know God loves that. God created play. There's a place for play. But life is not a game. That's the point I'm making. 
There's a place for laughter, but it's not a laughing matter. There's a place for play, but life is not a game. Life on this earth is eternally serious because what we do on this earth will determine how we spend eternity. The things we do in this flesh will absolutely govern how our eternity will be spent. Oh, may we have ears to hear. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed for every person to die once and then they will face the judgment. Just this week I heard of a young man in his 30s. Thank God he came to know Jesus Christ. But he was on his motorcycle and got in an accident and he died. His life on this earth is over. Now it's time to face the judgment. That's as serious as it gets, beloved. The Bible says in first, or 2 Corinthians 5.10 that each of us will have to come before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ well, he will, where He will pay us our due for what we have done in our bodies, whether for good or for evil. So a coming day of judgment, it is coming. And how we live on this earth determines how that day will go for us. That's why life is eternally serious. And one of the problems we have as people who sin is that our sin always comes with this idea that it's not that bad, that it's not that big of a deal. That what I did wasn't right, but God understands. He'll forgive me, He'll excuse me, whatever. Constantly, if we're being honest with ourselves, our, our hearts are filled with those kinds of thoughts, but it's not true. Psalm 21.2 says that every way of a man is right in his own heart. He thinks his ways are right, but God will judge his heart. God will judge the motives. God will judge the thoughts. And God is no respecter of persons. Just because I'm a pastor, God will not judge me differently than He judges everybody else. Just because you're rich or wealthy or grew up in a Christian home or whatever, think you're a good person. It just doesn't matter. God judges impartially. He judges impartially. And we will have to face Him and answer. We will have to account for our lives. This is serious. This day is coming. And that's why life on this earth is serious. I'm not saying that life is grim. That's why I was praying about, God, please help me strike the right tone, because I don't mean to have a, a sour feeling come over us this morning. It's not the point. There's a place for laughter. There's a place for play. There's a place for beauty and enjoyment and the goodness of God. God gave us all of these things for His glory and our joy. As John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, when we're taking joy in Him. There's a place for joy in life. But all I'm saying is, what we do in this life will affect eternity, and eternity is a very, very, very long time. So where's all this coming from? Where am I getting this from? A little over 3,000 years ago, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who revealed himself as Yahweh, the great I Am, he stretched his hand out over the land of Egypt to free his people from the hand of Egypt. And his main point was not only to free his people from slavery, but it was to show the nations of the world in that day that he alone was God, and to show the nations of the world in all days that a coming day of judgment is coming where he will judge us for our deeds. And that day will come upon us quickly like a thief in the night. The plagues of God upon Egypt were not only about Egypt. They were a warning. They were a sign to all of us down to our very day. And I pray to God that we'll have ears to hear. For 400 years or more, the people of God had lived in slavery in the land of Egypt. They started there as near royalty, but slowly they descended and descended into slavery. But when the time was full and God was ready, He decided to deliver His people by stretching out His hand and striking Egypt with ten plagues. 
And with each plague, he wore down Pharaoh's heart and wore down his heart and wore down his heart and wore down his heart till finally Pharaoh relented and let the people of God go. You know that with each of the first nine plagues, Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And the Bible is very clear about why. The Bible says that Pharaoh would not let the people go because God himself hardened Pharaoh. God himself caused Pharaoh not to let the people go. Now why would God do that? Well, as I've been telling you in the last couple of weeks, Pharaoh actually thought and taught that he was God. I've been musing about this for weeks now. It's so hard for me to get my mind around a man who literally thinks he's God. And he taught his people that he was personally responsible for maintaining the balance in the universe. That he was personally responsible for upholding it all and keeping it in balance. Water, light, air, fire, natural things, living things, everything. That Pharaoh himself was God and was responsible for holding it all up. I cannot imagine allowing myself to think I have that kind of power or teaching that I have that kind of power. But this man did. And people believed him around the world. And he also taught that his firstborn son, not just any son, but his firstborn son, was also a second God who would rise up someday and take his place. And so this was the religion of Egypt, and it was very pervasive and very powerful in the days of Israel. And so, as I've been saying to you, I think that the main purpose of God in sending the plagues upon Egypt was to show on the stage of the world that He alone is God. Beloved, this was a worldwide showdown between a man who thought he was God and one who actually is God. Each of the plagues was specifically designed to challenge Pharaoh at a point and to show that he was helpless before the living God. And so God showed himself to be the God of water. He showed himself to be the God of the breath of life, the God of living things, whether bugs or beasts, the God of health and sickness, the God of nature who controls the forces of nature. The God of the food supply, who could give us food and take it at any moment. The God of light and darkness, who could cause light to shine or cease to shine at any moment or in any place that He wanted to. And then finally, with the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, God showed Himself to be the God of life and death. On the fifteenth day of the month of Abib, which is roughly equal to March or April, so it's a springtime month in Israel, God stretched his hand out over the land of Egypt and he took the life of every firstborn male, whether he was a man or a beast, whether he was great or of the least. And as I said, the point was to show here without any ambiguity at all that God alone gives life and God alone takes life. Pharaoh had tried to take the sons of Israel and he failed, but now God took the sons of Egypt and he did not fail. And he didn't just take random sons, he took the firstborn son. What's the point? Here's the point. Unless God allows you to keep birthing and keep uh, pressing on and multiplying your race, you will not multiply your race. He is the God of life. He is not the God of the deists who believe that God sort of got the world going like a clock and just let it go and He doesn't really have much to do with the process. This is not our God. Our God is the God directly of life. He gives life and He takes it and nobody can stop Him. In the face of Pharaoh who thought he was God, the Lord God, the Almighty, the I Am, showed Himself to be God and nobody could deny it. I promise you on the world stage that very few people did anything other than tremble at the greatness of this God. The point of the plagues 
was to rebuke the gods of Egypt and to show that Yahweh, the great I Am, was God. This happened on a real day in history, and the message still rings all the way down to our day. Now, alongside with this tragedy for the people of Egypt, God also stretched out His hand and provided a mighty salvation for the people of Israel. And that salvation, too, prefigured the final day of judgment that is still to come on the face of the earth. Specifically, you know that God commanded that the people of Israel would slaughter a lamb at twilight and that they would take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the lintels of their houses. And later that very night, at midnight, the Bible says, when the Lord sent His angel to take the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, wherever He saw the blood of the lamb, He passed over that house and spared them from death. So on the night of the Passover, when the death angel came through the land, if he did not see the blood of the Lamb who was slain on the door of the house, death was in that house. And the Bible says that there was not a single household of all the Egyptians where someone was not dead. This was, this was very serious, beloved. Very serious. Whenever the death angel went through the land and saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, he passed over and instead of death, there was salvation from death in that house. And I want to be clear about something here. Being born among the Israelites was not enough for the angel to pass over the house. The physical line of progeny was not enough to save one from the death angel. The blood of the lamb had to be upon that house. If there was blood, there was salvation. If there was not blood, there was not salvation. This is the Passover, but it's not just about that night. It's about the coming judgment that will come upon all the nations of the world. In one day, in one plague, in one sign, God prefigured two things. One, that He will judge all the nations. And two, that whoever's household, so to speak, has the blood of the Lamb over it will be saved from the wrath of God. It's a very, very powerful day. The more I've been thinking about this, I really think the Passover is probably among the five most important days, maybe ten most important days in all the history of the world. This is big. This is big, big, big. Because it is literally prefiguring the entire future of the history of humanity. This is big. And this is why God commanded a feast. You'll remember that before the plague, the plague even took place, God prophetically commanded Moses to command his people to keep a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That feast was to start on the day of the Passover and then go for seven days. And that feast was to commence by, by slaughtering a lamb. It was to be a one-year-old male without blemish at all, and it had to be slaughtered. And then they were to roast that meat and eat it up all that night, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They had to consume the whole thing that night, and if anything was left over until the next morning, they had to burn it, because here was the point. Consuming that lamb was the symbol of salvation for that household, and the whole lamb had to be consumed. This was not just meat for the family that could be saved and eaten at any old time. This was a symbol of the salvation of God. The entire lamb was necessary for the salvation of the household. And so they had to eat the meat the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread. And I want to take the rest of our time this morning to talk about each of those aspects of the feast because I believe that they have to do with us. This has to do with our life. This is not just a story about something that happened 3,000 years ago in Egypt. This is something that affects us. God is still trying to get our attention. 
He's still trying to encourage us to be awake and be ready for the day, the coming day of judgment, when the Lamb will be revealed and the Lamb will judge all the nations of the world. So let me start by talking about the Passover Lamb. All I want to do here with this this morning is show you that the Passover Lamb was pointing to Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. I know that many of you already know this. Some of you have thought beyond me at this point. And I'm not trying to insult your spiritual intelligence. I just want to make the connection biblically so that we're careful to see that this event, this Passover and this feast are not just about themselves, but that they're pointing to things beyond themselves. So let me start with John 1.29. In that verse, and by the way, all these verses will be up here on the screen for you so you don't have to try to shuffle around. If you want to, you can, but it may get distracting. In John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward himself and he exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Beloved, that was no throwaway phrase. That was no accidental thing that came out of the mouth of John the Baptist. He was the last of the prophets. Every prophet pointed toward Jesus Christ. That's why after Jesus Christ there is no prophet in that biblical Old Testament sense of the word because there's no more need for prophets. Jesus has come. The last and final prophet pointed to Jesus and said those words, That's the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Then John showed carefully, and the Apostle John, he showed carefully in John 18.28 that Jesus was crucified on the day of the Passover. This is a crucial point, so let's read that. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that time, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. Why? But could eat the Passover. So John is very deliberately trying to tell us, signal us, get our attention and say, listen, this happened on the day of Passover. Now why does that matter? For many centuries, centuries upon centuries, you can go into the Jewish writings and you you could see this. All the rabbis and teachers of Israel taught that the Messiah would come on the day of the Passover. They knew that the Passover feast was not just about itself, but that the Passover feast was pointing to something beyond itself. And they taught that the Messiah of God would come not just on any old day, but that He would come on the day of the Passover. They taught this for centuries and centuries. Any Jew who grew up in a Jewish household would know this. The Messiah will come on the day of the Passover. So John is trying to say, Beloved, this is the guy. He's the guy. In the beginning of this Gospel, he called him the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, or for the sins of the world. And now near the end, he's saying, Listen, this is happening on the day of Passover. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Then, thirdly, in Exodus 12:46, there's this really interesting little phrase about the Passover lamb when the Israelites are being given instructions about it. They're being told how to prepare it and all this, and God was giving lots of details. One of the details God gave was, do not break any of the lamb's bones. Kind of comes quick and goes quick. Exodus 12:46 seems to come out of nowhere and don't quite understand why God is commanding that, but it's clear. Do not break any of the lamb's bones. Well, listen to John 19.31-36, and I think we'll see this little seemingly insignificant command was pointing toward the day of Jesus, toward a reality that would come to pass on the cross. John wrote, Since it was the day of preparation, that is to say, for the Passover, 
And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. When people were on a cross, the only way that they could survive was to push themselves up by their feet and get a breath. And if they couldn't push themselves up, they wouldn't be able to breathe and they'd die pretty quickly. So if they wanted someone on a cross to die quick, they'd just break their legs and, and they wouldn't be able to push up and they would die quickly. So that's why they're asking, please break their bones before the sun sets. 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and once there came out blood and water, he who saw it, that is the Apostle John, who was actually standing there watching this, the guy who's writing these words, saw it happen. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Beloved, the Apostle John is wanting us to make the connection between the Passover Lamb and Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, to the end that we would believe. He wants us to see that the Passover was a symbol of things to come and that Jesus is the fulfillment of things to come and the little details are not just little details. They're big things that show that God has woven a fabric all throughout the days of history pointing toward Jesus Christ. And when He came, He fulfilled all of those things. Very quickly, just a few more. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Peter says in chapter 1 of his first letter that we were ransomed from the world with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. They thought Him to be the Passover lamb. And finally in Revelation 5, verse 8 and 12, we see that this is no temporary thing. But there in heaven, Jesus Christ is, is figured as the Lamb of God forever and ever and ever. The Passover lamb was pointing toward Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And this matters for at least two reasons that I can think of. One, just as believers, I think it's very important for us to see, and we have seen, as we've gone through Genesis and now we're working our way through Exodus, we're seeing in one story after another story after another story that God Almighty had the good news of Jesus Christ in His mind from the foundation of the world. Yes? We've seen this over and over again. It's not plan B. God has been driving history toward Jesus from the beginning of the world. And even after Jesus, all of history is about Him. So it's important that we see this story is ultimately about Christ in Exodus 12. Second reason why I think it's important, extremely important, because just as the blood of the Lamb saved the people from death on the day of the Passover in Egypt, so the blood of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will save us from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. And beloved, believe me, nothing else will save from wrath on that day. If a person has not come under the blood of Jesus Christ, there will be death in that household. The Bible calls it the second death, and it is an eternal death. It is an, an eternal conscious death where you know you have been cut off from God forever. But if the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ is over the doorpost of your soul, so to speak, you will live. You will live. There will be life. There will be hope in you. So it is not a small thing that we make this connection and see 
that the, the symbol of the Passover night is a symbol of the future. And only those who are in Christ will be spared. And how I pray to God that we'll have ears to hear today. Especially kids and youth, those of you who have grown up in Christian homes, you need to understand that's not enough. Growing up in a Christian home won't do it for you. You must personally believe in Jesus Christ. You must personally embrace Him. You must personally cling to Him and let His blood cover your life. Without that covering, you have no hope. But with that covering, you have eternal hope. May God give you ears to hear this morning. I want to talk now about these bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs that the people were to eat along with this meat were just what they sounded like. The Hebrew means that they were herbs that were bitter. So, just trying to make a profound point. Bitter herbs means herbs that are bitter. When you ate them, they tasted nasty. They made you go, Pfft. you want to spit them out of your mouth. You did not want to eat them. So why would God command His people to eat something nasty along with the, the meat from this lamb that was symbolizing the salvation in their household? Why? I think the simple answer is suffering. He's wanting to remind them of the suffering that is part and parcel of waiting for the day of deliverance from the Lord. God is so good. We've seen time and time again in these books that He is amazingly gracious. He really is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in His goodness, He is determined to allow us to suffer and somehow the sufferings He lets us endure are good for us. In fact, it says in Romans 8, 27 through 29, there's a string of three verses there that I find very important. 27 says, you are, the, the Holy Spirit is ever interceding for you. He's constantly praying for you according to the mind of God and the will of God. Verse 28 says, God will work everything together for those of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Verse 29 says, He will conform us to the image of Christ. So here's how I hear this. The Holy Spirit's praying for you to work everything together for your good in that He will use everything to conform you to the image of Christ. When it says God will work everything together for good, it doesn't mean everything's going to feel right or be easy. It means that the greatest good will come out of it. This thing, even though it's hard, will make me more like Jesus if I will surrender to Him. And so I believe God is calling those people and us to remember the bitter herbs that will remember that suffering is part of God's plan. Some of you are suffering right now. Don't think you're going through something unusual. This is part and parcel of the deal. Jesus was very clear about this with us Himself. You will suffer in this life. But the good news is, the day of the Lord is coming. So eat the bitter herbs and know, remember, the Lord your God, He is God. And He will use even the bitter things that you want to spew out of your mouth. You want to get out of your life. You want to flee from. He'll even use those things for your good because He's a good and gracious God. And His blood in Jesus Christ will cover the doorpost of your life, of your soul. After the days of Moses, the people of Israel had to wait a very long time for Jesus to come. 1,200 years they had to wait. And there was a lot of suffering along the way. And since the day of Jesus, we've had to wait an even longer time. It's been over 2,000 years now since Christ came to this earth. And we're still waiting for Him to fulfill His Word that He will return and judge the nations and bring us forever who have believed in Him, bring us forever into His presence and into His kingdom. And along the way, He has allowed us to suffer. 
There's some of our brothers and sisters right now around the world that are suffering greatly for Christ. Even this very morning, people had to huddle in basements and in secret places just to name the name of Jesus because their lives are at risk. Somehow God knows that it's good, and so He lets us suffer. Don't forget, God is in your suffering. Just surrender to Him. Surrender to Him. Everybody suffers, but for those who believe in Christ, our suffering can be meaningful. So surrender to Him. This brings us to the unleavened bread, the final portion. You'll remember that when God struck Egypt, Pharaoh himself and all the people of Egypt were, were very afraid And they were urgently pleading with the people of Israel to get out of the land of Egypt and to get out of there quickly, as quickly as they could. And the Israelites obeyed this, and they left so fast that the Bible says they didn't even have time to put leaven in their bread so that it would rise. In fact, they didn't even take the time to to, to take the dough out of the bowls that the dough was in. They just grabbed the bowl, somehow strapped it to their shoulders, and hightailed it out of town. And when they got out into that desert, they cooked this dough without leaven, so it became that flat bread that the Jews are famous for today. But in their day, beloved, this was no sign or symbol. This was just the reality that the day of the Lord had come very urgently, and they didn't even have time to cook their bread properly. So the sign of unleavened bread is this. The the day of the Lord may be long in waiting, but when it comes, it will come like a thief in the night. It will come with great urgency. And so we ought to live a life of urgency. And and believe me, God was really serious about this leaven thing. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread in future generations, you'll see there in chapter 12, they've read this two times it says in that part of chapter 12, that if anybody in Israel was caught with leaven in their house during those seven days, their citizenship from Israel was to be revoked. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine somebody, uh, say the mayor of Elk River, coming into your house and finding leaven in your cupboard and taking your United States citizenship away from you? It was that serious in Israel. God meant this. God commanded this. And why? Why? Because I believe God urgently wanted them to remember the urgent things. God wanted them to remember how urgently that day was thrust upon them. And I do think, I said last week, I do think the experience of 9-11 helps us because that day was thrust upon us as a people. Tap into those emotions and feel what this was like. The day of the Lord came quickly and the day of Jesus Christ will come quickly as well. So God is saying, remember what I did so that you'll be prepared for what I'm going to do. Live an urgent life. An urgent kind of life. Not a, a dour, grim life. I'm not saying that. But live a kind of serious life. Life is, is filled with laughter maybe, but it's not a laughing matter. Be urgently ready for the day of the Lord. And if you're ready, that day will be a great joy to you. And if you're not ready, that day will be a day of great, great suffering to you. So I do believe that the symbol of the Passover, uh, of the unleavened bread, is urgency and living a life of urgency. And I believe Jesus picked up on this in, in several ways. And I'll close with this. Three things that I believe Christ would have us be urgent about. The first thing is believing in Him. He said in John fourteen six that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God the Father except through Jesus. And the symbol to keep in your mind here is the, the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of the house. Where there is blood, there is salvation. No blood, no salvation. Nobody comes to God except through Jesus Christ, period. There is no other name by which men must be saved 
but that of Jesus Christ. And so we must urgently believe in Him. Now sometimes Paul, when he shared the Gospel, he didn't just give like a 30 second presentation and ask people to believe on the spot. If you'll read Acts carefully, you'll see that someday, sometimes, Paul deliberated for days and even months with people trying to persuade them to believe. So I'm not trying to pressure you emotionally to make a decision today, but I am saying, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you need to take this seriously. You need to think about this. Because when the day of judgment comes, if you're not in Him, believe me, you are going to receive the wrath of God. And I don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. That's why you're here hearing this message. So be urgent about pressing into the claims about Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important on this earth. Nothing. Second thing, for those of us who believe, I believe that Jesus and His apostles would press us to live urgent lives with regard to pursuing holiness. To coming out from the world and living for God. Living all of our lives for God. Living aside the, the small and, and passing things of this world. To put our eyes on the big things, the eternal things of God. Let me just read a couple texts for you. First of all, this is from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 16, going to chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And by temple of God, he means us. He means our bodies. For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, because of that, Because God wants to be your God, because He wants to live all of life with you, go out from their midst, from the world, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So there's an urgency about pursuing holiness. If you're playing with sin in your life right now, beloved, just stop it. Just let it go and cling to Christ. Pursue Christ with all of your heart. Can you hear the Father pleading here? The message is not that you should live a legalistic life. The message is not that God is just walking around looking to crush you for anything you do or any mistake you make. The message is, I want to be your Father. I, the Lord God Almighty, want to walk with you and talk with you and do life with you and give joy to you and be on mission with you, live eternity with you. So come out from the little things and come into the big things. It's like C.S. Lewis said, we settle for eating mud pies out in the, in the field when we could be sitting at a banquet table with a king, eating all that we could eat. And this is the invitation. God is saying, come, 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 live life with me and find true joy. But to do that, we have to let certain things go. Mark 13. I read this last week, but I want to read it again. Here's Jesus pressing upon us the urgency of the day. Concerning that day or that hour, the day of judgment, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, Jesus Christ, but only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's been 2,000 years, but only He knows when He will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, the disciples now, I say to all, and I hear Jesus saying to all people at all times, stay awake. He's warning us, beloved, like the unleavened bread is warning us. Be urgent about this. Be prepared. It's not a laughing matter. The Lord has waited a long time. He's delayed, but He could come at any moment. We could die at any moment and we will face Him. So stay awake. Be aware. Have a rightful kind of trembling of God and live a life that you're not going to be ashamed to answer for to God. Be urgent about this. The third thing I think the Lord would have us be urgent about is this. He said in John chapter 9, verse 4, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So the urgency we ought to all have in our lives as believers is to be about the work of the Father while we can be about the work of the Father. The day is coming when we will not be able to work anymore, beloved. Either Jesus will come and the time will be over, or we will die. And the opportunity to do the work of God will vanquish from us. As I said, this beloved brother of Christ, he came to Christ in prison not too long ago. And now he's driving a motorcycle down the road and got hit, and and, and it's over for him. The night has come. The time of working is over. We have to have an urgency about life. Beloved, I heard of another person this week who may have a very life-threatening disease. It's a serious thing that could strike us at any moment. And I'm not trying to put a, a sense of guilt or anything upon us. This is why I was praying, oh God, please let me get the tone right. But putting guilt and all that stuff aside, I just want to press urgency upon us though. Life is serious. There's a place for laughter, but it's not a laughing matter. There's a place for joy, but it's not a game. Life is serious, so let's be about the work of our Father. Recently at Glory of Christ, we have refashioned our mission statement to say that this church exists to make disciples. And what we mean by that is going out there and winning people to Christ and then growing them up in Christ, showing them how to walk with Christ, and then releasing them in ministry and mission. So you grow them up, you win them to Christ, you grow them up, you send them out. That's what it means to make a disciple. And I'm telling you, God is setting my soul on fire for this mission statement. I really want to thank you for your patience with us as elders. It's been a long process, and you've been extremely patient with us, and I'm grateful for you. I really am. But I'm promising you we are working very hard to take all the beams of light in this church and gather them together so that they're like a laser focused on the work of our Father to make disciples because the time is coming when we will not be able to work. And getting this mission statement right and getting all of our energies moving in the same direction is not just a matter of organizational development. It's about heaven and hell, beloved. It's about heaven and hell. So are you about the work of your Father or are you wasting your life? You can be about the work of your Father as a homeschooler, as a student, as a pastor, as a laborer, as an executive. What you do to make a paycheck has nothing to do with this. What I'm asking you is, are you submitting to Christ and allowing Him to use you to spread the good news of Christ around the world? If you're not, get right with Him. Live a life of urgency. The day of judgment is coming. The night will come when no one can work. So let us work. Let us work and live urgent lives, beloved. Hopeful because the blood of the Lamb covers the doorpost of our life if we believe in Christ, but urgent because He's coming soon. Let me pray for us. 
Father, I love you for your word. I love you for being honest with us. As someone said to me last week after the service, I just love you being honest with us and, and telling us the truth so that we'll have our lives ready and so that the day of judgment will be a joy for us and not a, a, a worry or a concern or a day of suffering for us. I love you for your honesty. And again, Father, I pray now that the seed of the Word of God has been sown into our hearts. I pray that you would help us get the tone right. Father, some of us need conviction this morning. Others of us need encouragement. Only you know what everybody needs. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you administer to all of those needs, Father. God, please use your word to bear your fruit in the lives of your people for the glory of your name. Oh God, I pray this with all of my heart, with all of my soul. If I have done or said anything in any way to, to misrepresent what you would have said, then Lord, put me aside and please sow these things into the hearts of your people. God, help us to believe in you. Help us to cling to you to come out from the world and to live a life of love with you. Help us to join with you on mission and to live our lives for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, let these things come to pass. Let us see them with our own eyes. We don't just want to talk about these things, Lord. We want to see them with our eyes. So please, God, please come and do your work and give us your power. Father, we sing now the song, Lord, have mercy, because we acknowledge that none of this is possible without the massive mercy of Christ. So as we rise to sing those words to you, I pray that you would hear the cry of our hearts in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.